Mark chapter 2, as we continue our series in the book of Mark. And I hope this morning, by God's Spirit, that we will just continue as we move through this book just to encounter Jesus, become more aware of his glory and his grace and his goodness, and we would fall more in love with our Savior. So we're going to be reading verses 18 through 28 here in a moment. Now, if you've spent any time with small children, and that it would probably be all of us here in some way, uh, you know that they, they like to ask questions, uh, specifically why. All right? Paul Harris, a child psychologist from Harvard, has found through his studies, uh, he notes that if a child spends one hour a day between the ages of two and five with a caregiver who is talking to them and interacting with them, they will ask up to 40,000 questions in that time to find some sort of explanation. Uh, 40,000 times between two and five. And I'm just thinking about all you parents with those two to five-year-olds. Lord bless you. Lord keep you right now. Lord sustain you. Um, But as we get older and as those kids get older, it seems like the why of intrigue and curiosity slowly turns to the, but why, of the teenage years. Uh, It almost turns to sort of a challenge, and we are guilty of that as adults. Uh, Neil Postman, he's an author and thinker, uh, he, he said, all children enter school as question marks, and they leave as periods. And his point is that somehow we come to this sort of finality, like we've arrived, we've, we've settled. Uh, and we may still ask questions even now, but sometimes we do it disperceiving we already know the answers, and we ask it out of challenge versus humility and actually a desire to learn and a desire for truth. And as we are making our way through Mark, we begin to see this happening with the religious, with the religious Jews. They, they came to a proud period in what they understood about God. They feel like they had arrived and they had all the answers. And we are seeing in Mark that Jesus, Jesus has taken everyone to school at this point. He's showing us uh, that, that not only what we need to fully understand about who God is and who he is, but that he is the period, that, that he is the exclamation mark, the Messiah that was proclaimed far before and Jesus is not threatened by these challenges. He's not threatened by questions or the why questions. And as we're going to see in our text, he's going to be hit with a, very, a couple very direct ones this morning. And he gives them answers. Um, but as he gives answers, only those who perceive and believe that he has and that he is the answer can find help and will find truth. And Mark is revealing us to us, Jesus is that, his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the sovereign, holy one with authority. And so asking a why question isn't wrong, but, but who we ask the why question to, the, who we see as the authority, really makes all the difference. And what our posture is when we ask that why question as well. So let's read verses 18 through 28, and then we'll, we'll pray. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, 
Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is going to be taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, and if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into an old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is made for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful by any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for this this precious book that is helping us see and know and trust and believe in your son, Jesus. And Lord, I I want us to encounter your son today. Lord, I I want us to, to, to... see you as our all in all and, and in a way that we, we can have glad trust and hope today. So by your spirit, Lord, let us see Jesus. Let us behold Jesus. Let us know and trust in Jesus more this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, our, our two stories here land in a grouping of several vignettes. Uh, we we've saw a couple of them. They're actually a grouping of five in chapter 2 going into chapter 3, of Jesus just navigating sort of everyday life. And you notice each of them are kind of the same length. We see Jesus healing the paralytic and forgiving sins and then eating with sinners. And now we come to two more. And we see in these small stories something slowly heating up, something intensifying, and it surrounds the religious leaders. So rather than just observations of Jesus' activity, we see this uptick of them asking questions of him, of what Jesus is doing, and, and it's moving more towards confrontation uh, and a, a, an expectation of what they think is right and wrong and a challenge to, towards Jesus. And what we will see is that intensifies it. It's going to move to even a plot that they begin to make to actually kill Jesus next week. So two questions come to him, which are really accusations about Jesus' disciples which really is a backhanded way of accusing him. Like, Jesus, your disciples are doing whatever, and they're really following you, so what is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And Jesus answers them their questions with a question, and he's dealing with these laws and customs of their day. And in Jesus answering their why, he's exposing their faulty understanding of the relationship to it, and really a, a deeper clarity about what they mean and an in essence, a deeper clarity about his authority and who he really is. And so the first one here is Jesus and this concept of fasting. 
So our context is around fasting. It says that some of John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Well, what is, what is this fast? What is, what is going on with this? Why, what kind of fast is it? Why were they fasting? Well, in the Old Testament, fasting was oftentimes related to mourning or grief, typically over loss of someone, maybe death. And then there is also instances where there is fasting over sin. So death and sin. And, there's, and it's not even explicit, but it's implied that one time a year during the Day of, Atone, during the day of Atonement, there would be a, a, a fast that all of Israel would do as a sign of affliction, as a sign of mourning. Now we fast forward, and here we have these Pharisees, the, also known as the separatists, because of their pursuit of piety, of, of holiness. And, uh, and not, it wasn't just one time a year. It was, for them, they practiced this two times a week. There was a call to fast. And we're not certain why John's disciples were fasting. It's likely it was just common rhythm for the Jewish people at this time. But they pose this question. Some people come to him, and they say, Jesus, the holy people are fasting, the religious are fasting, the pious are fasting, but you, you and your disciples, they're not fasting. Why not? It's possible that they observe Jesus eating with the tax collectors, as you see just earlier, hanging out and feasting and having a good time. And Jesus answers them with a metaphor and a couple parables. And he answers them initially with this question, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. Now, tradition in these days, unlike in our day, uh, the bride and groom after the wedding, you know, everyone sort of takes off and the bride and groom kind of hang, go off and they do their honeymoon. It would be a week-long party following the ceremony for, for them during this time. So they would have the ceremony and then everyone would hang out. They would, all the guests uh, everyone who was there, along with the bride and groom, it would be eating, it would be joyful, they would be dancing. Uh, it, was, it was beautiful, it was fun, it was a party. And so Jesus is saying, uh, no, it, it is not a time for fasting, it is a time for celebration. I got to attend a wedding this summer, and uh, it was, the reception was one of the funnest ones I've been to in a long time. And as a pastor, I probably shouldn't tell, tell it to anybody that. <laughs> giving but it was there was friends there there was food it was it was simple but there was just beautiful um uh, 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 messages shared and just uh, people were just engaged and happy I saw old people swing dancing that probably shouldn't have been possible that they could be swing dancing at some point doing the chicken dance there must have been 100 plus people old people children doing the chicken dance it was it was awesome but it was only a couple hours, and then it was, you know, it was over, and everyone kind of went their way. And Jesus is saying, this is not a time for fasting. It wasn't a time for drudgery or solemn faces or aches or laments. Jesus is saying it's a time for party. Because he says the bridegroom is here. The implication is, I am the groom. I am here. And this would have been stunning and shocking. Because if the Jew knew his Old Testament, would likely would, in the Old Testament, the only person that is referred to as the groom or the husband was Yahweh, God, the Lord. This would have been shocking. You can see this captured in some prophets like Isaiah. For your maker is your husband, 
The Lord, Yahweh of hosts, is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus is identifying himself with this redemptive promise. God is the groom. Therefore, Jesus is God. He is the sovereign son of God, divine authority. The in-breaking, the Holy One of Israel, the Redeemer, is present among his called people. This is beautiful. But note, Jesus, rather than saying fasting is wrong, he doesn't dismiss it as something wrong, as something that needs to be done away with. He just says, now isn't the time because I am among my people. And Jesus gives us this, this hint, and we'll begin to see this increasing hint of Jesus' cross, the suffering that is awaiting him down the road, the sorrow that will pierce the heart of his disciples. He will be taken away. When he is taken away, there will be mourning. There will be fasting. What Jesus is beginning to do in these encounters, he's drawing a line in the sand. Those who are with him and those who get it and those who reject him and those who can't see and will not embrace him. And to illustrate his point, this contrast of this new thing coming, he uses these two examples, the patch and the wineskins, to communicate the error in their practices. And notice in our little parables, he uses this word old and new a couple times. Now, a bit of ex explanation, and I'm not sure the last time that you hand-sewed a patch on some of your clothes. It's been a while for me, maybe a couple months or so. I just had to kind of refresh myself as I was studying. So if you have an old, worn cloth or piece of clothes, it's used, it's washed, it's stretched, it's been dried many times, and you try to add a patch to it of some new cloth, that patch will eventually get worn and dried and shrink, and then it will rip the hole and it make a greater problem. And likewise, with the wineskin, Jesus is saying, if you take uh, what would for them be a fresh tanned leather, uh, a bag, and they would put the fresh wine inside that with elasticity and stretching, um, it would continue to ferment and the CO2 would be, be given off and it would have to expand. But if you, if you did that to an old bag, an old wineskin, and that fragile bag would begin to expand, it would burst and all the wine would be lost and, of course, the bag as well. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 1, verse 14, the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom has come because the king is present. He is here. Jesus, Jesus is communicating all the fulfillment of all the prophets and all the law that was spoken of and anticipated. I am bringing that new thing upon you. Things are changing is what he is saying. I am undoing. How we relate to God is going to change. How you get to God is going to change. Who gets access to God is going to change. My kingdom has come and I'm ushering in something new, a new covenant. The old thing is passing away. 
And Jesus is challenging these religious people who thought they had arrived, they had the period, and he's saying, I am not gonna be an add-on to your system. I'm not just gonna just be an appendage to your old system of religion, tacking me on to some old way of Judaism. My kingdom is expanding, something new is breaking in, and I need, I need new wineskins. I need a, I'm gonna bring a new birth so that my new wine can come in and pour into those new wineskins. And all these practices and these laws, they're, they're finding their fulfillment and their reference in me. So following Jesus means something has to change. Not just a little bit, not just attacking something on, but all in all has to be transformed. His words, his ways transforming his people. Theologian James Edgeworth wrote this, if the disciples of John and the Pharisees grasp the significance of his person, they will understand why they should celebrate rather than fast. But their non-compliance with the party, however, attests to their non-acceptance of his person. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make some room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. The call to follow Jesus is not to just add a little Jesus onto our already busy, normal lives. Not like an in-app purchase where we're just going to select something and just download a little improvement and upgrade to our already existence of who we are and what we got going on. Our business as usual. This is not the call to follow Jesus. It's not what disciples of Jesus look like and are called to. Jesus' demand on his disciples was to come to him and become new receptacles, new creations of his, by his grace and by his gospel. And he was going to come at a cost, the cost of letting go of the things that we thought are right or what we think our ways or our comfort should give us. It was going to be costly, is what Jesus is saying. But this costliness was good news. This costliness was good news of new wine, of being near and celebrating the joy of being with the groom. That is the good news of the gospel, church. And Jesus is heightening the contrast of this old and the new, grace and religion. Religious rule-keeping is inflexible. If you grew up in that experience, it's burdensome, it's, it's crushing, it's death. And we will continue to see that for the religious, this sort of dry, dead custom made them customs and the religious people made them unable to accept and believe and follow Jesus. And what does religion do? It just attempts to get us to God without, without Jesus, without grace. And that is joyless because it's with trying to get to him without the groom, without the joy of being with him. And I don't know maybe where you are in your walk with Christ, but, but does, does your Christian walk feel maybe at this point sort of just joyless duty, cold, sterile? Well, legalism 
has the, tempt, the temptation for all of our hearts to slide into, to somehow we have to earn our way into the acceptance and the goodness of God. And it is, it is lifeless. It is joyless. I got to hear a testimony of a brother this week who, who grew up in a Christian home, but he was very, very sh- sort of strict and religious and legalistic and fundamentalist and lots of do's and don'ts to please God. And, and he, he continued to experience that tension. Am I okay with God? Am I right with him today? What do I have to do to add and make the Lord pleased with him? And then he encountered the grace of the gospel in Jesus Christ. It was liberating for him. It didn't draw him away from wanting to obey and follow Jesus, but it empowered him to do it out of a way that was is resting in his love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. And that grace compels us to rest in God's provision for all that we need to be accepted by him. So Jesus is undoing all of those old patterns. He's coming in and showing us what grace looks like. But in all of the joy that we see sort of promised in this moment, the reminder to the disciples and to us is Jesus was taken away and there was an expectation and hope for his return. We trust in Jesus by faith, by the spirit, and we have access to this, the joy of this party in part, but we live in a, in a broken world. We, we know this. We do mourn now. I attended a, a funeral this, this week that was full of, Tragedy and sadness and sorrow and brokenness. There was a family, a member within our own church, a loss of a brother-in-law just this week, a sudden death. All is not, all is not right. The bridegroom, we anticipate his return. We long for that and we still mourn. But our grieving, our mourning, one day we'll be done away with. Tears will be no more. Jesus will come and return. And this future redemption, this wholeness, this rest that we are longing for is in view in this next section that Jesus draws our, our attention to. So verse 23, we see that one Sabbath, Jesus is walking along and he's in a field with his disciples. They're plucking heads of grain they're likely just like rubbing them with their hands and they're blowing the chaff away and they're, they're eating the grain. Um, they were hungry. I, that doesn't whet my appetite at all, thinking about doing that. <laughs> I prefer my grain like ground up and like made into like pizza dough and then baked and pizza sauce and cheese and pepperoni on it, but whatever, they, they were hungry. But this act in the eyes of the Pharisees was, was breaking the Sabbath law. Their, their plucking of these small heads of grain was considered harvesting or reaping, which was work, which was for, forbidden by the Sabbath law. As seen in Exodus 34. And now there were two very important observ, uh, observa- observances for the Jew that were paramount, that were unlike any other nation or practice. It was circumcision in the Sabbath. The Sabbath time was observed from sunset on Friday and carried through sunset on Saturday. It was very, very important to Jewish life. Their, their whole rhythm of the week ran on this pattern of wrapped around this day of the Sabbath and how we engaged or disengaged on the Sabbath. Now, a little 
history is connecting to what, how that connects to the Old Testament and what that meant. The word Sabbath was described as, as cessation or rest. It's rooted in the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And it, it's tied to creation. The Lord created, he, he, he worked, and we see in Genesis for uh, six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested and he designated it as holy. So he finished creating the entirety of creation, including man and woman, and then he, he rests. It's like, like the Lord sits on his throne and all is, all is right. Everything is good. All of his creation is at peace and as is it should be, shalom, and the Lord rests. And Israel was to reflect their creator, God, by working six days and then on that seventh day, resting. So there was no overwork in view. We weren't abusing employees. We, we were resting. And all of, all of Israel would participate, family and animals. Everyone would experience this rest. Uh, the, the law would later point their observation of this rest to their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. So it was a point of worship and gratitude. You are our deliverer. You are our provider. It was, it was a sermon that they lived in. They would labor to cultivate the earth, but ultimately they were dependent upon the Lord, Yahweh, for peace. They weren't autonomous. He sustained them. He was the one that provided for them. He was their deliverer and their God. It was a gift to Israel. The, the Sabbath was a gift to Israel. It was to aid their people in resting. And they had all these practical implications of human flourishing and social flourishing. It was, to, it was to give life. The Sabbath was to give life. However, the religious had this backwards. They, they, they slid from this good purpose. They were mistaking the law for something that was to be achieved and to be added to. So it became burdensome. So it was rule keeping. It was ritual and calendar keeping for holy status. So they had layers and layers. And so it was box checking for the Sabbath versus the Sabbath being helpful for them to provide life. And so they added all kinds of things to the Sabbath law. They weren't supposed to sow. They weren't supposed to do any butchering. They weren't supposed to write a letter. I'd mentioned that I, years ago, I got to go to Israel and we were in a hotel and our organizer leader said, if you wanted to like write a letter or a postcard to family back home, do not be in the lobby on Shabbat and on the Sabbath doing that because you're going to get like rebuked because you're writing on the Sabbath. So it's very tangible. It's very real. It's very rigid and strict. This was not the intention of the Sabbath. Jesus is not breaking the law here by doing this. If he was, then he would not be sinless. But he's, re, he's correcting a misinterpretation and application of it. And so Jesus corrects them by asking this question. Don't you know the story about David and his men? As in like, hello. Don't you recall what David and his men did? Well, what was going on there? Well, this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. David was on the run with his band of soldiers Saul, the king, was after him, trying to kill him. And they're running, they're hungry, they're tired, and they end up in this place called Nob, and they approach the high priest, and they ask for food. And the priest tells him, you know what, I, I don't have any common bread for you. All I have is the, the, this holy bread. 
which is meant it was the, the bread of the presence, which would be the 12 loaves that would be on the, the table in the tabernacle. And they made these fresh bread every, every uh, Sabbath, and it was reserved only for the priests. No one else were to eat it. It was forbidden for them. And yet, out of the necessity of these starving men, it made provision for them to eat. It was an exception to the law to give life. It was there to give Life And Jesus connects himself to this story with his disciples. They're picking grain and they're eating on the Sabbath. And this exception or this right understanding of the law, like David's situation, was because God's ways were not to bring drudgery or yokes or death, but life. So Jesus is doing two things. He's correcting their misunderstanding of the Sabbath and he's showing them something greater than David is here. Something even greater than the Sabbath law is standing before them. So he says the Sabbath was made for man and not for the Sabbath. You already see him undoing this misunderstanding. You weren't living and obeying to try to please something regarding the Sabbath. The Sabbath was there to give you life. And the religious leaders were missing this. They were trying to add all of the layers and burdens in order to strip them of life rather than for joy. And this is where it culminates. This is where he, Jesus, makes this stunning claim. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If Jesus is the Son of God, then he is God and therefore king over creation and over mankind, that means he's even Lord over Israel and therefore Lord over the law. He is Lord over the Sabbath. Meaning he invented it, he defines it, he owns it, and therefore he can exercise authority over it and establish its real purpose and its intention. Now this, this is a massive claim. Jesus' identity is in the forefront here. Mark is trying to help us see that. Jesus' claim. Remember that, that day of rest spoken of in Genesis chapter 1 when God rested? I was there. Remember when those Ten Commandments were spoken of by Yahweh on that mountain? I was there. And now by my gospel, I'm going to define this Sabbath rest. And actually, I'm going to be the one that ushers it into its fullness. And Jesus' connection to David, Jesus is saying, I am, I am the better King David. King David was this archetypal of the messianic king that would come. And Jesus is saying, I am that Messiah. And I'm with my band of soldiers and I am on a mission and I'm feeding and I'm providing for them. Yet, yet my provision goes far beyond just food and physical sustenance. I am on the way, my way to my purpose and that is my, my cross. And I'm gonna tr- provide a true and better Sabbath rest for, for God's people. See, Joshua led Israel into the promised land and rest, and the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus leads us into the final and future eternal rest, where all things are made whole, 
where all things are right and at peace. Jesus is saying, I am that end. I, I am the period in that. I'm the exclamation in this. This Sabbath points to a bigger purpose, and that purpose is in me. I am Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, the completion of this day. Just as God ceased from his work and his work was complete, Jesus shows us by his life and will show us by his death and his resurrection, all will be complete in him. All will be fulfilled in him. All our righteousness, all our obedience needed, all the atonement required will be complete in him. And he invites his people into that. He invites us into that even today. And so these two stories, and we're going to see even more next week, Jesus is showing us himself. He's revealing that he is the, the end, the completion. And Christianity isn't just us tacking on Jesus to sort of the normal routines and traditions that religion seems to to offer us. Jesus doesn't call these disciples just to, to add something better to their life. Remember, they just left everything recently. And they're following Jesus. And he's, he's not leaving them to life improvement or improved Judaism. Judaism. He, he is leading to, to, to something completely different. Life-shaping, life-transforming. He wants them to, to see all things are going to resolve in him. In him will be life. In him will be rest. In him will be joy. In him, as we saw last week, will be forgiveness. In him will be wholeness. Mark challenges you and I with this question, every reader with this question. Who, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Does he, have, does he have authority to interpret and make sense of your life? Your questions. Does Jesus get the, the final say to the answer to those questions? Does, how does Jesus following him, knowing him, knowing his word, give understanding to your word, your world, particularly the, the whys of your world? Now, I, I know many of you might be here even this morning, and there, there are some, probably some heavy whys questions that you're encountering in your life. Why am I struggling? Why this loss? Why, why this place for me financially? Why this doubt? Why this just plaguing fear? Why this weakness in me? Why this relationship? Why this prolonged sickness? Why this brokenness that I keep getting hit with? All our, all our why questions, we, we will go to an authority for those to find peace and rest. We will go to some authority to get an answer. And Jesus invites us to him. He says, those answers are gonna, those questions, those whys will find resolve in me. And of course, the Bible nor Jesus answers all the questions in our circumstances with clear, cut and dry answers as we want them to be. Sometimes there's mysteries around that. But when we look to Jesus by faith, the Son of God, he, we sing, he is the authoritative one. He is the creator. He is the suffering, sovereign God. He is the, has the power to heal. He has the power to deliver. He has the power to, to forgive sins. In Jesus will come peace. 
in Jesus will come a confidence that why I exist and what the circumstances and what I'm going through, I can find his love in the middle of that. I can find rest in the middle of that. I can find peace in the middle of that. St. Augustine said, my heart is restless till I find my rest in thee. There's so many things that keep our heart restless. Sometimes it's religious striving. Sometimes it's those questions that are just plaguing us in our life. And Jesus invites us to let go of those things and to, to rest in him. Resting in him, resting in what he fully accomplished in his cross for us. And he blesses us with that rest. When we get near him, not with proud, challenging threats, but in humble need and trust. So question for us as we follow Jesus, asking the why questions as his disciples, is he leading the way? Is he making sense of those things? Is are we looking to him for those answers? Is he the authoritative last word for us? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. You haven't placed your trust in him. But the further I get removed from finding my questions brought to Jesus and finding my answers in Jesus and connected to Jesus, the more lost I will be. If you're not a believer, you're not trusting in Jesus, I invite you to to find the answer to the why of your life in Christ this morning. Turn to him. Rest in him. And lastly, I, I think a point that maybe could be some encouragement for us this morning before we end. When, when we are with Jesus, we are never alone and we are never lost. Jesus seems to be communicating. I'm not like John or the Pharisees. And my followers, when they're near me, when they're with me, they're going to be different too. And there's a lot of gravity that we're going to begin to see in what disciples are called to. And, but to be associated with Jesus is to be associated with all of his ways and to be connected into the safety with him, the defense of him. I love what this gentleman, Donald English, put. Jesus and his disciples are being seen increasingly as a unit. To criticize them is to produce a response from him. To criticize his disciples is to provoke a response from him. Jesus answers those critics on their behalf. This is really the good news of the gospel. Because our sins come to us, criticizing us. We were reminded this morning, trying to speak condemnation, Satan speaking lies to us. In church, we, as his disciples... He becomes our defense. He becomes the one that has all authority to speak on our behalf. So let Jesus defend you this morning. He speaks for you. He has the last word to say about your sins. Your sins don't define you. Jesus has the right, the last word to defend you and speak for you. So when criticism comes flying at you from world or people or family, your righteousness is in Christ. Let him defend you. He defends and he provides for us, even in our anxious hearts. Notice our, again, our connection with David and with Jesus in the Sabbath. Hungry and famished followers who are on God's mission with God's king, who are in need of rest and nourishment. And when they're with him, they are protected, defended, they're provided for. 
Hardships and pain will be experienced, but we are with Jesus, church. We have Jesus with us. You are in Jesus, fellow disciple. You followers of Jesus, the great king, the king of all, on his mission, he he is going to provide ongoing hope, ongoing rest, and ongoing refreshment for us as we follow him. And he wants to provide that for you. And so, yes, we, we do fast, and we don't do it as in a religious empty checkbox, but we, but we do it to help our hearts become fully spiritually aware. We fast to anticipate and welcome more of his love and to stay ready for him. But we know how the story is going to end in our waiting. The bridegroom is coming back for his bride, and he's going to make all things right. Mourning will be all gone, and we'll be satisfied in the deepest way that we need, and that is when we find rest. So let's, let's pray. Let's ask the ask Lord to help our hearts rest in him this morning. Lord, we... We have why questions. Sometimes they come in ways of antagonistic postures or, or unbelief. But you're not threatened by those. Actually, you're, you're the most tender towards those that, are, that perceive you as king and are trusting in you as Lord and Savior. And you, you're so gentle. You, you welcome us into those weaknesses and struggles. And, and Lord, in you, when we see you as, as the Son of God, as Savior, as the Messiah that's come, we, we know that we are, we, are with, we are with you, Savior, the bridegroom. And there is there's contentment, there's rest, there's joy in that. And we are near you, the Lord of the Sabbath, and in you there is peace, there is rest. Things get made right when we are with the Lord of the Sabbath. We don't have to toil, we don't have to work to enter into that, that rest and that peace, but we can, we can have by faith place our heart in you. Know that you're good and you're in control. And so I just I ask for just a sense of peace and rest upon all of our hearts. If there are those here this morning that are that are struggling in, in a place of, of mourning and of grief. And it feels like the comfort of, of the Savior is distant. Would you please bring your comfort today, Lord? Bring your rest. Bring your nearness and your love to, to us. And if there's any here today that are trying to answer the why question of life on their own, looking to other things and other religions and other people rather than you, Jesus? Would you become their all in all? Would you become the answer to what they're searching for? Because in you is life. In you is life and is in you is salvation. So Lord, may, may they trust in you today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.